if you've always gone over the same text over and over and over again, and you haven't seemed to travel very far in your conversation, maybe it's the text you're skipping over that might actually give you the engine you need to get to where you're hoping to. Is everything God says absolutely true to his character? Are we supposed to follow God blindly? Does God test us by trying to throw different types of perspectives at us instead of staying true to what he truly says? Is saying no to God such a bad thing? And how do we know if we're saying no out of our own desire or out of our desire to stay true to him? This week, we're discussing all that and more with Matthew Corpman, author of Saying No to God. This is a great episode and it'll make you think, so let's get right to it. We are for the spiritual nomads, the outcasts, and the ones who desire to ask the hard questions. A shelter in the desert, a safe place to share our thoughts, our hopes, and our dreams. We are pursuing the truth, and we don't care about the consequences. We invite you to come and sit at our table and be a part of our tribe. We are brave, we are bold, we are the Reckless Pursuit. Hey everyone, welcome to The Reckless Pursuit. I'm Elaine. And I'm Cody. And you're listening to episode 108. And this week we are talking with Matthew Cortman, author of Saying No to God. Yeah, this was an extremely interesting conversation because that idea in general is so counter cultural to what we would initially think of. But man, like, let's be honest, there are times when uh, people throughout the Bible probably needed to say no to God and times that they did. So if you've ever felt like, man, is this really what God's asking me to do? This is definitely the episode for you because uh, we're talking about really comparing God's actual nature to sometimes what he has asked or things that have been said in the Bible, learning how to read the Bible through the right lens. And it's really a great bridge between conservative and liberal theology. I think that Matthew does a great job of blending those two things. So we're about to get into that, but just a real quick reminder before we do, we would love to have you a part of Nomads to keep the conversation going. We poll you guys, we ask you guys questions, and we just have legit community over at Nomads. So if you haven't done so so far, go down to the show notes below and click and ask to be a part. We would love to have you. All right, let's get right to this conversation with Matthew Corpman, author of Saying No to God. All right, everyone, we are here with Matthew Corpman, author of Saying No to God. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent now that I'm here with you guys. Yes, we had some technical glitches, which always seems to be the case right when we go to record, but yeah. we're here, we're going strong. So Matthew, let's just open this up. Uh, by this point, everyone's already had a small introduction to you, so I'm going to give you what's the brief synopsis of, uh, I guess, who you are and why you write. Oh, my. Well, uh, who I am is a student at Yale Divinity School, um, but I am also someone who's deeply uh, committed to following and being enticed by and being embraced by uh, that mystery, which, you know, Christianity calls the Christ and uh, that grace that uh, we believe envelops the world. So, uh, that you know, I'm I'm both in the academic world as well as the personal spiritual world. I have interests in both, and I try to combine them in unique ways. So you know, I try to pioneer and go into areas that people tend to have not 
gone because they haven't thought to put that specific thing with that specific thing. Um, but why I write uh, is also very similar. It's because I'm very interested in trying to understand and kind of convey the things that I learn. But also I find writing is itself an experience in me learning about what I already believe. I think, I think it might've been, um, you know, JK Rowling who, um, or some, I think it's JK Rowling who said like, you often find uh, what you already believe in, in terms of what you're writing. Like you're discovering what your convictions are based on how it's coming out on paper. And I think it's a very healthy thing, especially when you're dealing with such complicated topics like theology and the Bible to take the time to really think through and explain what it is that you're thinking, because you can have a personal conviction, but then not have the words to describe it. It's not that you don't know what you believe, but you're not quite sure how you're supposed to make sense of saying it. And so it's wonderful, of course, if you can express your own feelings, and then those feelings uh, help to unlock words for other people who have been searching for that way of describing what they've been feeling for a very long time. That's good. I love that. So saying no to God, this is a extremely interesting topic all the way around. I've been reading through your book. Uh, it's, it's extremely fascinating. You have so many fantastic points. So I just want to just start by that is like, I really enjoy your work. Um, you're Thank very you. thorough. And that's something that I enjoy more than anything, I think is just you take time to elaborate in multiple different ways to validate what you have to say, or at least your thoughts behind them. So what brought you into writing this? I've actually had people laugh at that fact. Um, even professors of mine who who say that uh, they they've never quite or they don't often quite find somebody who is trying to like almost like a lawyer think through like all right mm -hmm. now what objection are they thinking <laughs> yeah. of? This and then once yeah. I say this, what's the next objection they think of? Um, but you know, it's my approach. I, I try to create an argument that I don't necessarily think is foolproof. I don't think that like nobody smarter exists and is going to be able to poke a hole in it, but I want to make it as hard as possible for someone to poke a hole in it because then that's a stronger foundation for everyone to start off. Absolutely. For sure. So what uh, brought you to the point, I guess, or why did you write saying no to God? And let's just start getting into that because that's the conversation we're having today. So, well, I think like on a very basic level, everybody has kind of heard the slogan, you know, uh, the Bible says it, uh, or God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And there's an implicit logic there that's just, it just shared across the board. If you really think, say, take the doctrine of inerrancy that, you know, God, not even just that the Bible's words are without error, but inerrancy as in like God's words are without error. There's no sense in which uh, if God said something to you, you would doubt it if you knew it was God. Just that principle Really, truly, conservatives and liberals are in complete agreement. They don't really disagree on the idea, the theory. They disagree in practice on whether or not they have something that works with it. So for conservatives, they think the Bible is inerrant uh, because they think it really is the exact words that God said, whereas liberals are like, no, we believe in inerrancy, but just this is not it. This book doesn't fit the bill. And what my book really tries to do is to see through this kind of loop that conservative and liberals are in and say, well, let's just start looking at the very premise of inerrancy. And is it true that if God said something to you, that would settle it if you knew God said it? And the funny thing that I found and the reason like the book started to, to come about was realizing that in scripture, there are these stories where that's just not the case. It does not happen that way. 
there are people who hear things from God and they say no to those things. And God says yes to them because they said no. Um, there are things where it explicitly says that God is, you know, not exactly saying what his will is, even when he tells you what his will is. And it was those kinds of paradoxical stories that typically have, are usually skipped by ministers and, uh, and are kind of pushed to the side because of their kind of controversial nature. Um, that really made me wonder, as is often the case, are the things we're looking over or kind of dismissing because we think that they're not worthy of our time or they're too complicated, are those the things that actually might hold the answer? If, if you've always gone over the same text over and over and over again, and you haven't seemed to travel very far in your conversation, maybe it's the text you're skipping over that might actually give you the engine you need to get to where you're hoping to. And so for me, this was a very personal issue of trying to provide a new foundation for both conservatives and liberals, however one defines each of those groups. But the two poles on which people seem to bounce back and forth in religion on, can I, can, does the Bible give a foundation that escapes the current conflicts we have and would give us a whole new conversation, which we could actually begin to like meet together at in the middle? Yeah. Mm. And I love that because I feel like it's kind of uh, the idea, like you could pretty much pick any polarizing uh, topic. And for the most part, we g- agree on the outcome. We want to see the same thing. If it's a, if it's abortion pro-life versus, you know, pro-choice, most people want to see less abortion. Most people want to see less, you know, people being put in that situation. It's just a polarization on which way you want to go with that. The same thing with gun violence, like one side wants less laws, one side wants more, but we all want to see less people getting hurt by guns. I feel like that's the same way with a lot of this Bible stuff is we can start getting into this and you have one camp who's extremely this, one camp who's extremely that. But the truth is we all want to try to follow God or understand God better. So what what are some thoughts you have toward just kind of getting into this for a second before we kind of backtrack to that? Because this is something that's been on my heart a lot lately. How can we start to understand each other? How can we see each other's side in this? Because I think your book does a great job of walking a line for both conservative and liberal thinkers. Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is we, we aren't speaking the same language. And that's kind of part of the problem. You know, we, we are in a situation where essentially people are talking past each other for one group. The only thing that really seems to matter is, you know, uh, emotions and feelings and what are the present circumstances for um, and, you know, that will dictate everything that goes forward. On the other hand, you have the extreme on which feelings and circumstances are meaningless, laws are eternal, and they take texts that they assume are directly from God and they use those texts, uh, denying any ability on their part to think around them, contradict them, or at least in theory, they're denying it. So what ends up happening is, you know, you can have a conversation that literally goes nowhere. And my own church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, we experienced that uh, in 2015 when we were having the beginnings of like real discussions on women's ordination and as a church body. And there was an ordination task committee that was put together to bring different scholars from across the spectrum in our church to discuss it. And what they found was virtually nobody changed their opinion after a year of intense study and and scripture. And the reason why, really, is hermeneutics. How do I read what I'm reading? How do I approach what I'm approaching? 
Those are the basic foundational questions. And conservatives love to poke at that all the time. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't have the hermeneutics of, of faith in the scriptures. That's why you're all adrift. Um, but the problem is that if you want to have a conversation, you've got to get on some level playing field. Yeah. And on top of that, if you're going to have a level playing field in Christianity, it's going to need to be rooted in scripture. Not only because you think to yourself, like, that makes sense given the role the Bible has had, but also just by virtue of the fact that the Bible has had literally a, it has always been the thing that shapes the conversation. Um, you, you know, people say, I, I care more about Jesus and what Jesus says. But then, you know, people can poke at them and be like, yeah, but you know Jesus because of what the Bible's saying, right? There's this loophole in which we always are bound back into the scriptures, uh, despite how much we're attempting to mitigate them at times. So I think if you're going to tackle those issues, right, and have pro-lifers and pro-choicers have a substantive conversation, then you're going to have to root it in something other than, you know, my way is best because there I said it, right? And, and for both groups, they're essentially doing that, even if one group has a text in which they're trying to. And it doesn't help very much either if, you know, on the other side, the liberal uh, Christian grabs texts and says, ah, but look, you know, here's a verse in Leviticus that seems to not mind, uh, uh, you know, um, abortion. So, you know, or numbers, I mean. So, so there, you know, that, that's my verse I take. It, it's not a good approach because in the end, all you end up doing is having two sets of people throwing different verses at each other that contradict. And that can just leave someone who's watching it going, all right, well, then yeah, why the heck do we have this, this book? Yeah. Like, what's right. the point? Yeah. Right? And so... You know, the, the thing that my book is trying to essentially do is say, well, actually, the problem, again, is the premise that the way people are approaching the Bible and approaching even the idea of what God's word is to begin with is wrong. And if we were to carefully take a look at what scripture actually says, what God's words mean, we might actually find a level playing field in which the conversation would look radically different from the way we're currently having it. That's really good. How do we get both camps there? What is it? And I think that's kind of like, uh, I guess that's the that's the golden question, right? Like, how do we bring both people? And I think you do a great job in the first part of your book of just saying like, hey, you're here. Let's kind of look like, where is that line? What is law versus what is thought? Or really, I guess that kind of gets down to the meat of it of like, what does it mean to say no to God? Can you say no to God? And that's really where all this starts kind of playing into me. But where is that line? How do you know what is law versus what is opinion in the Bible? How do we start kind of navigating that? Well, I, I, you know, the way that you began that statement, it made me immediately not even thinking of scripture per se, but sort of thinking about God and God's character. You know, when you think about a relationship with another human being or specifically your wife uh, or, you know, your partner, what you're looking at uh, is essentially the question of, you know, we would laugh. Let me put it this way. We would laugh and kind of be funny if we heard like, this guy or this woman talking about the same thing you just said, but in relationship to their partner. Sure. And just like describing like, you know, I don't know, no, 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 where, where's the law? And, and yeah. where's right? yeah. it would sound a little ridiculous, yeah. right? Because love in and of itself, whether it's, you know, familial or, you know, brotherly or, you know, it's, it's romantic, you know, whichever form in which love is kind of taking its form there is obviously an inherent law in how love works. And yet at the same time, we don't 
we don't approach love from that kind of perspective. There are limits, but the limits are, are always evolving. They change and depending on the betterment of the other person, there's, it's almost always a dance, right? And so I think that when you start thinking of the, the Bible and you think of the God who is spoken of in the Bible, you won't be able to escape the fact that the God is spoken in very personal terms. Like the Bible clearly wants to state God's description in the same sort of description and relation you would think of other human beings and personal beings that you would have a relation with. That means that it's probably going to be messy. It's not going to be the sort of, uh, this isn't like, you know, the law of gravity, right? This is, this is going to be a different sort of system we're looking at just by virtue of the fact that it's within a relationship and it's within a relationship of a God, which, you know, the New Testament, like in first John is describing as love that God is love. So you already know it's going to get really messy because, you know, if we can't handle our own personal relationships in real life, uh, you know, in such a clean knit, you know, systematic way, what makes us think that it's going to be super easy to get on one page in regards to understanding, you know, the culmination of that love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like you see more of the opposite specifically online, because it's a little easier to become face-to-face with somebody and really see the emotion in the heart behind these conversations. But whenever you're just typing on your keyboard and you're just bickering and arguing with each other back and forth, how do you find the love when you can't even see the emotion in somebody's eyes whenever you're just typing away at your laptop? And before we even, before I let you have a chance at, <laughs> isn't that exactly the same problem we're faced with the Bible? Yeah. Like, it's a really interesting, I don't know, I'll open the floor back up to you, but I just had that thought. That's an interesting no, parallel. No, it's, it's true. Like, I mean, human faces, we're learning more and more with, like, the development of artificial intelligence and, like, teaching it how to understand faces. We're learning more and more than ever before just how many things our faces are really delivering and that our eyes perceive in others. So, if, you know, facial expressions and, and, and context, all these things make such a difference in regards to human empathy. And it's always going to be difficult when you suddenly take that and put it into text, whether it's a story or whether it's a, um, a conversation of dialogue, it's going to become very difficult to kind of understand always like, all right, um, I can't perceive the empathy there, right? So I'm going to have to generate it. But then that creates those problems. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I think Cody's right. It's inherent to the text format that suddenly we're missing this, this huge element um, and unfortunately, right, like that should require us then. And I believe that the Bible writers expected one would be doing that, which is imagining this story and putting in details, right? The, the Bible is not a, a very moralistic kind of book. It doesn't go around like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which mm-hmm. is older. And you know, <laughs> the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's like every other thing is, and this is why, right, uh, why this is good. I mean, you get that a little bit in like Genesis in the beginning, but usually it's like, this is why we got this invention, right? This is how that happened. It's not usually so much like, this is the moral reason why, you know, we're going to make a city or do this. And so the Bible writers seem to revel in this idea that they say as little as possible to evoke as much as possible. And that kind of evoking of your empathy and your imagination is unfortunately something that many of us today uh, just aren't trained to do anymore. We're, we're reading these as if, you know, these are strict legal kind of texts in which we just, that's exactly what's, but even then in law, law is not strict and simple, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone's been watching, you know, the presidential impeachment proceedings that happened before, right? If you paid attention to the arguments, right, there was nothing simple 
about it. There's a reason why lawyers can have two arguments. That's the nature even of law. There's always going to be that opening for interpretation, even when you think not, it's definitely settled. No. And, and that's not a bad thing, but it is when people try to deny it. And then they, they deny the ability for other people to be giving their perspective so that one has as much of a perspective as possible versus just a very narrow one. That's good. So before we get into the win, which is what I think this is really kind of heading, let's start with the how or the why. Uh, what, or really, let's start with the what. What does it mean to say no to God? Let's give a quick example here just for people who haven't pick up, uh, picked up the book yet. Okay, uh, really good example. If God comes to you and says, I want to, you know, let's, let's imagine you are uh, leading a community. You're a mayor of a community, we'll say. And um, you as mayor suddenly have a vision or not a vision. God himself just shows up and he says, uh, well, I'd like to go ahead and I'm tired of your citizens here in the, you know, state of Las Vegas. I don't know. And you say, I I don't like the city. I don't like, I want you, I'm just going to kill them all. And I'm going to restart everything with you because you alone are like a very good, you know, card carrying member of whatever good organization God currently approves of in your political affiliation. Anyways, the point is, do you be, are you going to sit there and be like, well, God just said he wants to go ahead and kill people. That's God's will. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, do it. Now, I know automatically people are listening and going, this is a joke. God would never say that. God's not going to cut. First of all, God's not going to show up. Second of all, God's not going to go ahead and say something like that. And, uh, if it was, it wouldn't be God, you know, it would be Satan. I'm not going to, right? The funny thing is, is that that exact kind of a scenario does occur in the Bible. In Exodus 32, you have Moses on Sinai. The Israelites are down below creating the golden calf. And God turns to Moses and says, I've had it. I regret that I ever saved these Israelites a few days before. I'm going to murder every last woman and child and baby and infant. And I'm going to murder them all. And I'm going to start over with you, Moses, like you're a new Abraham or a new Noah. And now this is a great moment for Moses. I mean, let's face it. These people have not been the greatest you know, supporters of Moses, <laughs> nor will they remain the greatest supporters of Moses as time goes on, right? I mean, there will, even his own brother and sister are going to object to him uh, as time goes on. So, you know, it sounds pretty nifty. He's going to kind of get, he's going to have a whole new story built around him alone and his family and his dynasty. and. And instead, I mean, and I might also add our own personal conservative convictions would want to say, well, if God tells us something, then it's supposed to, by virtue of inerrancy, be his true will. And, you know, it may look bad to you because of your fallen perspective, but in truth, this is, this is a much bigger, grander plan that God has for you. Um, and the fact of the matter is Moses doesn't buy any of that. He comes back to God and he says, you cannot do this because it's evil. <laughs> you know, if we wanted to put Moses, you know, further down the line into um, our own colloquial language uh, and with our theology, you know, Moses would have probably said, you can't do that because then you're Satan, <laughs> right? You, know, there's a, you can't do that because you're God and Satan's Satan. And if there's one thing we can agree on, Satan is not God. And so if you're talking like you're Satan, then this just ruins the whole point. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he adds other reasons. He says, you're, 
God, you don't break promises. If you do this, you've broken all your promises, um, not only to the Israelite. Then he also adds in like, and by the way, why would anyone in the world ever want to worship you or trust you if you betrayed these people trust just because they pissed you off? Now, it's amazing that that story's there, but the interesting thing about it, right, is that in a kind of similar way, we ourselves are faced with the same issue when we open up our scriptures to, you know, different laws or rules or stories in which we see God analogous to Satan, where we see a God who says, yeah, um, absolutely, so-and-so, go and kill all those infants. And then it says they did, right? It's one thing to have a story like Moses, where Moses has the ability to object, right? God suddenly comes to you and says, bam, and then you say, no. But when you're reading stories in which it's already in text, it's already sealed, it's already there, and you still want to object, this is where these stories come really in handy. Because when looking at Moses, the first thing to understand is, right, if this is a story that's supposed to help us think about what the role of someone with faith is, uh, what their responsibility towards divinity is in terms of uh, calling out a discrepancy like that, then that principle kind of falls on us as well as Christians uh, or believers or, or, you know, Jews or otherwise uh, to recognize that there is this higher principle on which even you hold God to, which is, you know, to recognize that when Moses in Exodus 32 is having this conversation with God, he says something very interesting. He says, you know, you, you've got to show me your ways. And this is kind of, in a sense, uh, a way in which Moses is saying, these are not your ways. And there's another similar story in Genesis 19, I mean, 18, um, where Abraham is talking with God and he objects to God and he says, you know, far be it from you. And that is very analogous to Moses telling God in the story, show me your ways. You know, this is not who you are. It's far from you. Now show me who you really are. The, the interesting trick of the story, though, and this is where my book comes in, really important, is that two chapters later, God says to Moses, fine, I'm going to show you my ways. Go hide in that, that, little, that little cave, that little cleft in the rock, and um, I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to show you my ways. And when that happens, God is like, I am ever loving, ever merciful, always forgiving, always, you know, gracious, always... And you sit there and you go, and well, that doesn't sound like what you just said two yeah. chapters mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Right? Now, now it gets even more confusing. It's not like these are two different stories. It's the same God character in the same story who's like, I'm going to kill every infant because they pissed me off. And now he's like, I'm always forgiving. Well, now you're left wondering here. But the interesting thing, right, is that Moses had said, these are not your ways, right? Moses rejected the idea that this genocide that God wanted was actually true to who God was. And in the end, God ends up basically affirming all the values that would have led Moses to object to the genocide. So in the end, it's like God was always this good thing, but not that initial bad thing, and Moses knew it. Now, that is made even more complicated by the fact that in the midst of these two chapters, Exodus 33, you actually have the writer describe this interaction between Moses and God as speaking like a friend face to face, right? Like, this is really interesting. The writer of Exodus sees Moses objecting to God and fighting over it as friendship. 
And so the question that kind of falls from this is to ask, what is God doing here? And, you know, if you look at uh, certain uh, Reformation commentaries like Martin Luther and John Calvin, I think they came to, and, I, and they weren't the first ones to do so, but I think they came to the right conclusion. And unfortunately, we've long uh, ignored it, which is that God was testing Moses and in other stories as well, testing individuals to recognize that, you know, in this confrontation between humanity and the divine, God is really testing to see, do you know the difference between Satan and me? Do you know the difference between Moloch and me? Do you know that I am not just the God who technically holds power, but that I am symbolically holding the right kind of power? And people tend to think about God in terms of just authority, just power. Um, and that's problematic because in the end, why are you worshiping this God, right? Is it, you know, I mean, I guess God could have told Moses and said, well, you know, um, why are you worshiping me and you're not worshiping, you know, ISIS in Egypt? Is it only because I showed up? I'm here. But that's not what God claims in the Bible. God's not just claiming, hey, I'm the local deity who happened to save you. So thanks for <laughs> worshiping me. Yeah. Right? There, you know, there's this whole character to this God, which is being learned about. And so in a sense, this is almost like a pedagogical tool in which somebody finds out whether they're faithful to uh, God merely in the way a soldier is faithful to their drill sergeant or whether they're faithful in the sense that they will remain true to their convictions despite the fact that their convictions might lead them to object to like the current problem that's in front of them. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's basically the uh, highlight of what, like every modern superhero film, like where the one person has to go, you know what, despite the fact that I'm going, it's basically Batman. <laughs> I mean, right? Like you, you have to say no to standing up for what you're expected to so you can stand up for what you know is right, what you know is just. I know it was a dumb analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Like you, that's in essence, that's what you're saying is despite uh, God is using these situations to say, do you know who I truly am or are you just following me because you want what I have? Yeah. And I mean, we see this even in, in we see this even in politics where like some parliamentary systems have, you know, what they call the loyal opposition. And what they mean by that is these people are opposing the current government, but they do so out of loyalty to the principles of that government. Right? They're not disloyal because they oppose what the current government is doing. They're opposing it out of loyalty to these principles they think matter the most. So it's not like Moses here is saying, I'm so much better and smarter than you, God, and I oppose you. It's, he's literally saying, this is not you. There are these principles that mark divinity that make you different than you know Satan. And right now, you are not doing that. You have denied it. So I'm opposing you out of loyalty to, you know, that system. I, I want uh, to hold you to the fire. I want to make sure that you are who you are. And God welcomes that in the story and, and praises Moses' faith because of that, precisely because it demonstrates that Moses knows who God is. Moses understands God, whether or not uh, God decides to test him. It's not like he's going to say, well, you know, your will be done no matter what it is, even if it sounds like the devil's. There's a limit in which the person clearly understands right and wrong well enough to say, that's God, but now that you cross that line, that's not God. That can't happen. 
And unfortunately, the way we talk, especially in conservative circles, about what God's will is, it's basically like, oh, no, you can't disagree on something. You can't. It doesn't matter if that story doesn't sound like God's will. That was if God decides that he has a better morality, you're fallen. None of those things can be true if Moses' story is true. And that's a principle that I think um, I almost wish I had spelled out even more like a whole page on is, you know, we often say this, right? People say there's a rule, but if someone can find an exception to the rule, there's no rule, mm-hmm. right? The exception Good. breaks the rule. Yeah. You, yep. It becomes the new rule because a rule can only stay the rule within the given context, right? We can say like gravity exists, gravity works everywhere. Well, except you know, when you hit outer space. Yeah. Oh, well, that's exception. Gravity doesn't work everywhere. There are limits to it. People have to recognize and understand that if the Bible is, you know, if you have a, a Piper of the world telling you that, hey, you know, John Piper, you know, hey, you know, whatever God says, that's exactly what it says. And that's what you do. And you can't question it. And that's the will of God. Okay, great. But now if you find a story, just one even story of Moses being able to defy God and be rewarded for it, that's the exception. Now, suddenly, boom, none of the old paradigms work. And the funny thing is, it's not the only story. There's you know, at least a, uh, uh, almost, you know, 10 or more stories that you can find in scripture that demonstrate the same principle. That's a lot of exceptions that blow away any idea or any justification for assuming that inerrancy works or that uh, you don't have the ability to talk to God one-on-one. Moses clearly is not so fallen that he cannot recognize when God is acting like Satan And if it was the case that our morality is so fallen that we can't tell the difference between good and evil, then why in the world do we have moral teachings in the Bible? What's the point in teaching people that can't make up a difference between right and wrong, right and wrong? That it's, it, there'd be, it'd be kind of like a total waste of time. Like you're, you're, you're just like the whole Bible is like, oh, don't even worry about it because you know, you can't even understand it. You just got to follow whatever, whatever rules are there, but you'll never understand why. That does not agree with how we understand life or how we experience it. We can tell the difference between uh, what is a satanic image of destruction and harm and violence and uh, devastation versus a a heavenly, uh, godly view of increased prosperity and forgiveness and reconciliation. We can tell the difference between those things. They're not strange to us. And if we can, and Moses can, then if Moses can disagree, What prevents us from being able to? Something that I've kind of been thinking about when it comes to saying no to God is how do you discern if you're saying no to God because you know that it is or isn't within God's character or you're just being disobedient? Because immediately what comes to my mind is uh, when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and he's like, no, I don't want to. Well, I feel that's a disobedience. But then with Moses and God, he's like, hey, that's not your character. Where do you draw the line in, oh, I just, I'm not following God because I don't want to, despite him telling me something, or you know that is the character of God. Right. And so, you know, I saved that chapter for dealing with that to like the, the second to, to last chapter for two reasons. One was it doesn't take a lot of people a long time to figure out there are limits. But it seems like it takes forever to have somebody accept that the limits they currently have need to be broken. So I spent a long time in the book trying to just get the idea that you can say no down. And then finally, you come to this point where it's like, okay, well, there actually is a system here. 
what prevents you from just saying no to everything? What, what ends up where your own emotional state is the only thing that controls the narrative? And there are plenty of stories in the Bible where obviously, like you said, Jonah, among others, where human beings object to God, they say no, and they don't end up having the success story that they do. And it's interesting that in Jonah's case, right, Jonah actually admits in the book that he did, in fact, previously tell God, you know, he knew God was going to forgive the Ninevites. Jonah knew that was why God was sending him to condemn them. Uh, because there's this verse in, in Chronicles where God says, you know, if you turn back to me, you know, I will forgive you no matter what I've condemned you with. And so Jonah knows exactly what God's character is, and he hates it. And this is the key for Jonah's story. It's not that Jonah just says no, right? Jonah knows that God's character is forgiveness and reconciliation, and Jonah hates it. That's, it's, it's, it's not that he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't even have a warped view of God. He knows that God is this way, and he knows that he doesn't like the results that that brings. He wants the Ninevites to be destroyed. He wants the Assyrians to be punished. And the idea that God is not going to end up doing that isn't something he wants to partake in as the reason why they don't. And I think that that kind of reveals something important, right? Jonah wants the Ninevites to be wiped out, man, woman, and infant. Moses does not want people wiped out, right? Like we have two parallel stories here in which people are fighting over who should die. And Moses is winning because he wants God to preserve life. Jonah's losing because he doesn't want to preserve life. And I mean, this is even confirmed in the Gospel of John where Jesus is uh, being attacked and he says, you know, you seek to kill me, but if you were from God, you would be seeking to preserve life, right? You, you seek to kill me, only Satan's tactics lead to death, lead to this kind of destruction. And that's really important to recognize that in all the stories where God is portrayed as denying the battle between the human and him, or that he says no, or even cases where God just steps back, like for instance, when Israel wants a new king and... Um, and so they reject Samuel and God tells Samuel, well, they're rejecting me, but give it to them, right? They're going to, they want this. I'm going to lovingly give it to them. I've warned them what the consequences will be from their own actions. There you go. God doesn't have to punish them. They punish themselves by electing uh, somebody who will end up punishing them uh, because they didn't want to listen. So when you look at the characteristics as I lay them out, right? You have stories in which God says no to people because they said like no to foreigners. For instance, Miriam and Aaron object to Moses because he married a foreign wife and God lashes out at them and is like, nope, that's, that's not going to work. You can't fight this. Um, you see this uh, again and again with uh, hatred and with uh, a number of factors. The interesting thing is I lay them out in the book where you just like put a list and when you put list of all the stories where people win against God versus all the stories where people lose against God. You get a character list of values. That's good. Yeah. Where one looks like Satan and one looks like God, right? And you start to realize that there's such a consistency between those values that you realize, okay, the issue here is the reason why the humans lose against God is when they want God to look like more like the devil or they want the selfish benefits that come from sin. Whereas like when they're doing like typically things we would think of as godly, like defend justice, love mercy, do, right? You're like, man, that is really strange. Those are the kinds of things I would not have to say no to God about because those are who God is, right? 
And that's precisely why it makes so much sense that in these stories, God is testing uh, his followers. I mean, you see this even with Jesus. It's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. You see this with Jesus, with the Syrophoenician woman, where she goes ahead and, you know, says, please, please, you know, heal my, my daughter. But, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that the woman is crying out after Jesus and the disciples when they're walking. And the disciples are confused because they're like, why isn't the master sending her away? So they go and ask the God, they're like, you're not helping her, so you don't want to help her. But you're not sending her away, which just makes her annoy us. So like, make up your mind, what's going on here? And of course, God, Jesus doesn't. He, he goes into the house, she comes in, and he says, well, you know, uh, it's really a zero-sum game, you know. Um, miracles are like bread, you know. I either give the food to you or I give it to the kids. And, you know, you're a dog. So think about this logically. Would I give the food that's meant for my children to a dog. No, that would make me an irresponsible parent. So hello, like, I'm sorry, but I got to give it to the kids. And what does she do? She comes back at Jesus and she says, no, you're wrong. That's not logical because even when the kids eat, they're messy and the crumbs will fall down and eventually the dogs get to eat them. So you're wrong. It's not zero sum. Some of it gets into the dogs. Now, what she's basically saying is, Jesus, you're wrong, you're dumb, you're illogical, you made a false statement, you didn't think this through, right? She's objecting to the way that Jesus is thinking through the issue. And then Jesus immediately responds and says that uh, for saying this, because you have faith, I've healed you, I've healed your daughter, done. He rewards her. And what's so interesting is the reward isn't for trusting in something or for trying to uh, stay true to She is rewarded for not accepting what he said as the final statement and basing it on the principles that God works on, which, I mean, let's be clear here, right? Logic, which is what, in this case, the, the battle is between, is very much an issue of, uh, of godly providence, right? God runs the world and universe on logic. Without logic, nothing works, right? Things have to equal, right? Sin is illogic. Sin makes no sense, right? Sin is, you know, you slap me, I punch you. You know, you punch me, I knife you, right? It's escalation that makes no sense given what's actually happening. There's no real sense of cause and effect. Um, there's no justice to it. So the thing is, is that this is very much uh, a woman, and what's so unique, of course, is in the Old Testament, all the stories of fighting with God are men. And in the New Testament, all the stories are, are typically women uh, that are successful. And it's fascinating to see, you know, this kind of the woman here, in a sense, embodying the divine mind, the kind of mind that God has in terms of trying to bring in the largest number of people, right? And in a sense, that is her faith. Her faith is knowing what is true and not accepting something false in its place. And, you know, we see this with Mary in the same way, where Mary, his mother, comes to him in John 2 and is saying to him, you know, well, there's this problem here, you know, you need to do something. And Jesus says, well, it's not my time, right? And in John, this is really important, because for John, Jesus is definitely God. There's no, we're coming to understand him, he's a messenger of God, he's, Jesus is God. That's end of story for John, right? If he says it, God said it. So. God is telling, you know, Mary, just as much as God would tell Moses, no, this is not my, my plan. This is not what I'm going to do. 
And then what does Mary do? She walks away and in totally heretical fashion and unorthodox and un, you know, definitely anti-inerrancy, she goes ahead and tells the servants he's going to do something. I don't know what he's going to do, but this does not match his character. He cares even about happiness at a wedding. So whatever he says to do, go do it, right? Why does Jesus, why, what is happening here? Jesus ends up doing something exactly like he said, it's not my time. And people bicker back and forth about like, oh, it was, did this actually change? Is this, but the truth is, right? God didn't change. And Mary knew that God didn't change. What was a change was having God say, nah, it's not my time to help people. It's always God's time to help people. That's what Mary knew. And that's why Mary acted on that conviction. And it's why Mary succeeded. That's good. For time's sake, we're going to have to wrap it up there. But Matthew, where can people find your work if they want to dig into more of this? And I honestly cannot encourage you guys enough mm-hmm. to go and do Absolutely, so. Yeah. Well, they can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, it's certainly available on Amazon. The full title is Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Um, you can go to its official website if you want to get more info and watch an interview with me. Um, that's www.saynotogod.com. Or you can go to my own website and uh, find different interviews, uh, links to yours and others I've done. Um, and that's at uh, www.matthewjcortman.com. And uh, yeah, I hope that people uh, check it out. Less because of what I have to say. Um, In fact, actually, I think most people tend to like the parts of the book where I'm just talking about what the Bible says. I think probably the (laughs) least popular parts are the things I actually am saying. But um, the value that I hope that this book contributes to anyone who's potentially hoping for some resource they can draw on is way less to do with like me giving anything as much as opening up a new way to have a conversation and opening up new verses of the Bible that have sadly been neglected and giving them the spotlight they need to help us begin to think better about the heart of God and how the heart of God is more the focus of what inerrancy should be rather than the words of God and why that difference is so important for going forward. Matthew, thank you so much for this conversation. Anyone uh, who missed any of that, the links are in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So y'all can go down there and grab and check it all out. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I greatly enjoyed having this conversation. I deeply enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Cody. And thank you so much, Elaine. This was mm-hmm. a wonderful conversation. I hope in the future, uh, I'll be able to have another one with you at some point. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of what's on your heart, what's in your book, and just... Uh, This amazing perspective that you have taken the time to study out, it truly impacted me, and I know it impacted a lot of other people as well. Guys, if you want to connect with Matthew, all of his links that we mentioned are in the show notes below. If you don't mind, run down there real quick and leave an honest review. That helps people passing by know what this show is about. And of course, don't forget Nomads. Oh, and by the way, if you want to rep some awesome spiritual nomad gear, some Reckless Pursuit gear, head over to therecklesspursuit.com forward slash shop. We have a ton of cool merch that we have released, and I really love these shirts like we're replacing our wardrobe. So I also want to mention that my favorite t-shirt says, God loves the black sheep. And I've had a lot of people already reach out to me and where they can get that shirt. So So that's where you can get it. As always, be brave, be bold, and be reckless. We'll We'll talk talk soon. soon.